0: Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 22, and then we'll go into chapter 23 today. So hear now God's holy word. Having arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, as we near the, the account of the cross the death and the burial of your son, Jesus, our Savior. And as we look forward, not only to reading about the resurrection, but celebrating the resurrection at Easter, I pray that through this study, you will keep our hearts and minds focused on what a great price was paid for our life. That, that your son, our Savior, gave himself completely and went through the shadow of darkness and the valley of death and loneliness and abandonment. to to bring us close to you. So Father, guide us by your Holy Spirit as we study these things and keep our hearts pointed toward Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, I don't don't have to tell you, you know it for yourself, beginnings are exciting. Whether you're talking about the beginnings of a, a, a new effort, the first days of a new enterprise, the first miles of a family trip or a family vacation uh, the the implementation of a new plan is usually attended with energy momentum hopefulness optimism it it's it's great it's wonderful it's it's glorious to start new things starting new things is exciting but sustaining that momentum is incredibly difficult. In fact, to be faithful, to stick to your plan day in, day out, through setbacks, through discouragements, through disasters, to stick to it requires more than just good feelings and optimism. You have to have strength that comes from somewhere outside of yourself. You really have to have the strength of God's Holy Spirit. You have to have deep wells, deep reserves of fortitude and discipline and and principles. You have to have the sense of purpose that sustains you despite what you're feeling at the moment, despite what critics may be telling you, you persevere. You know how difficult it is to sustain good things because you've experienced it in your own life. You've seen it in other people as well. You've seen someone's resolve go from strength to 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 Silly Putty. You've seen their their resolve melt, and and maybe you've experienced it yourself. I I trust all of us have. It's so easy to come up with examples in church life. Uh, Someone will say, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's get together. Let's pick a weekday, and let's get together like six o'clock in the morning, and we'll Read the scriptures together and we'll pray before work. We'll just, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, we'll get coffee, we'll pray, we'll study together, and and we'll encourage each other. Well, great, that sounds wonderful. Let's let's go. And then you do it, and week one, you've got a really good crowd. I mean, you've got a really good group of people. Some people who typically don't do things outside of Sunday morning, even will show up and you think, oh wow, this is this is really wonderful. You have a great time, you have good discussion, it's very encouraging. Week two comes, and it's pretty good. You lose a couple. They, you know, this guy had this, and that gal had this other thing, and, and you might have picked up somebody else, but, but it was still great. Week three, you might have half of what you started with. Week four, it's you and the pastor, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, way, that's the way it typically goes. What sounds so good on the front end, what sounds so delightful becomes a chore. It becomes difficult to sustain. Ecclesiastes 7, 8 says, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. (laughs) But I ask how many people are actually around at the end to see how good it is, (laughs) to see that the end of the thing is better than the beginning. And you see this on a bigger scale and and in many ways a more tragic scale with uh, some families as they mature and as their as their children grow up with with your first children you're always so militant about schedule and diet and discipline and, and everything that you're going to do to to raise these kids right. And you're so earnest, you're you're so determined with, with the right education and schooling and, and schedule And you've seen families like this who are champions of Christian education. They make sacrifices to see that their kids are raised in faithfulness. No compromises with the first children. (laughs) And then the second, third, fourth kids come along and they start to waffle a little bit. They make compromises. And by the time you get to the baby of the family, the parents become just tired. You just get tired of fighting the good fight. They're spent. They're worn out. And what was once so important, now is just peripheral. In fact, you find them arguing against their old positions just because they get worn out. It is so hard to sustain good things. Now, I'm thankful for the many exceptions we have to that, but you've seen it, and we've seen it enough that you need to be uh, conscious of it for yourself and for your own family. In the beginning of things, we all sign on in honesty. We really do want to be faithful at the start. We really want to please the Lord Jesus. At the start of things, when we, when we sign up to join the gym, or we, or we you know, uh, set a new diet, or we, or we set a new discipline of study and prayer, we have every intention of seeing it through. We have every intention of finishing what we started. But the weariness of the daily grind the constant war against the world and the flesh and the devil, it drains our intentions, it drains our energies, it drains our enthusiasm. So if we're really honest with ourselves, when we read about Peter and his struggle on the night of Jesus' arrest, we can sympathize with Peter. We may sympathize secretly, But we can sympathize with him as he denies even knowing Jesus. To this point in Peter's life, he's been carried along in a wave of excitement. There have been miracles. There have been crowds. There's been wonders. There's been stimulating debates, astonishing teaching. All of this, plus loyalty to Jesus, his friend, has taken him this far. Where even just a few hours before this, he was willing to defend Jesus with a sword knowing that he might be giving up his own life in protecting Jesus. But as these events of this evening unfold, all of Peter's resolve is sapped quickly. And now we see a man who's just, who's just giving up. He's done fighting. And you and I look at that and we say, Oh yeah, boy, I know that feeling. I know exactly what that feels like. That's, that's what happens. Yep, I get it. I know what that's like. And we see it with the people of Jerusalem too. When we watch the people of Jerusalem, we see their enthusiasm and their energy flag and, and their energy and their enthusiasm turns to contempt for Jesus when they see another Messiah who in their minds doesn't live up to their expectations and he's just this other failed revolutionary and they turn against him as well. Well let's see these events unfold and 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 hear what the spirit says through the scriptures. Earlier that same evening when Jesus sat with Peter at supper, remember, Jesus told Peter that this would happen. Jesus told Peter, "You're going to deny me 3 times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning." And now after all of the events of this crazy night, so far Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Jesus has been arrested by the temple guards in the garden by dark of night. And the other apostles have fled the scene. Now Peter alone stands outside the high priest's house. Jesus is being questioned and mocked inside the house of the high priest. Peter is in the courtyard with the servants and the others. In the chilly night, in the, in the spring air of a, of a cold, of cold night, they're warming themselves by the fire. When Peter is recognized by a girl and then a man. And then another man, each time he's recognized, they see, oh, we've seen you and you're around Jesus. In fact, you're pretty close to him. Every time we see Jesus, we see you. Every time someone recognizes Peter, he escalates his denial. He doubles down each time. We read it a few minutes ago. First, when he's asked by the young girl, he says, I don't, I don't know Jesus personally. And then, then he denies that he's associated in any way with Jesus' followers. And finally, he denies that he has ever been a part of Jesus' ministry since the first days in Galilee. He's progressively throwing away his identity in and with Jesus. Everything that he's been working on these last three years all the ways he's grown everything he's seen everything he's been a part of he's just taken it off and he's just throwing it into the dumpster he's just divesting himself of his identity in jesus and and peter t- i'm sorry luke tells us that there are, there's time that passes in between each of these denials it's not like three people come up to him at once and say you know him no i don't you know him no i don't you know him no i don't there's There's a great amount of time that passes between each of these denials, so Peter has time to reconsider his position. He has time to remember the Lord's words about denying him in front of men, the importance of acknowledging the Lord Jesus before others. He's also forgot how the Lord has promised to sustain him in the midst of examination and accusation. And then, obviously, he's forgetting even that Jesus said that this would happen just a few hours before this. You see, once upon a time, Peter had a good beginning. He started out really well. He was willing to go with Jesus. He says this, I'm willing to go with you to prison and even to death. I'm willing to go with you, Jesus, everywhere. And now when he's confronted, he says, I was never with him at all. You see how he's flipped? I'm willing to go with you. And now he says, I'm not, I'm not with him in any sense at all. Each time he's asked, Peter's frustration increases and he he loses all composure at the end. And and when we read this, we see a little bit of ourselves in him. And and we have to ask, if he wilts in confrontation with a slave girl, what's going to happen when he stands before rulers and magistrates and unsympathetic courts himself, like Peter is before right now? As... (laughs) Uh, and, and we see that what's actually happening here is that Peter is losing all of his bluster. He's losing all of his zeal. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what the Lord had in mind when putting him through this test is that he would be sharpened, that he would be changed and he'd be sanctified through this. Well, after the third denial, the rooster crows. And even though Peter is outside of the house and we know Jesus is inside the house, Luke tells us that they made eye contact. Luke tells us, Peter saw the Lord and the Lord saw Peter. So they might have looked through a door or looked through a window, but they had a connection. The rooster crowed and Jesus looks at Peter. And Jesus knows and Peter knows. And Peter knows that Jesus knows. And they, oh, yeah, yeah, you said this would happen. The rooster crowed and I denied you. I couldn't... I couldn't even stand up for you in front of servants. What, what could they do to me? I'm just I'm just standing out here by the fire, and I I couldn't even I couldn't even say your name in front of them. And then, and then he goes away, consumed with guilt, weeping bitterly. Jesus is going to personally restore Peter after the resurrection. Peter's going to be forgiven. Peter's going to be strengthened. Of course, Peter becomes a great central figure in the, in the church after this. So this tragic sin, thanks be to God, isn't the last thing that we read about Peter because Peter comes back. Peter is at the empty tomb. Peter hasn't left Jesus entirely and Peter's story isn't over. And in this, there's a promise for me and you that there's hope for us when we fail. There's there's hope for us when our strength fails and our courage fails. Our failure is not the final word, we repent, we come back, we seek forgiveness, we embrace restoration, we renew covenant, and we start over again with a new, a new set of, of fresh energies and fresh resolve. We, we'll get to see that with Peter, but not yet. We'll see it soon. But for now, Luke is going to go inside the house, and he's going to catch us up on what has been transpiring with Jesus, who's being held prisoner by the Jewish authorities. So let's pick up in verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who is he who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. We really get to see the curtain pulled back and the true emotional and spiritual maturity of the men who are holding Jesus captive. Uh, they are like locker room bullies. They're like middle schoolers blindfolding him, teasing him, mocking and insulting him. And this is their response to the gospel. This is their response to the word of life. This, this, this behavior, just out, out and out. I, I can't stand what you're saying. I can't, I can't hear it. So I've got to beat you to show you that you're, that you're wrong, right? right? I mean, that's my argument. Fists, hatred violence. They, they'd sooner get violent and mock and shout than to have a real conversation. We, we see the very same thing today. It doesn't take a whole lot of provocation to get people to respond this way to the gospel today. All you, all you have to do really is just read the Bible. In certain environments, you just read the Bible and, and people get angry and they get apoplectic and beside themselves. And they still believe they're the civilized ones, right? They, they still believe that they're the reasonable ones. They're the logical ones when all you have to do is read something and they lose their minds. They just, they just lose all control. Well, uh, the truth uh, is that it, that it comes down to this. They believe and they're operating with the sense that the way to make yourself feel good, the, the, the way to, to convince yourself that you're right is by abusing someone else. They, they cover up their own insecurities by abusing others. And Jesus puts up with this abuse through the night. Verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. As we head into the account of the trial of Jesus, we need to get a handle on the order of events here Uh, First, there's a Jewish trial before the Jewish court, which is known as the Sanhedrin. That that was what their court was called, where the chief priests are seeking to condemn Jesus according to Jewish law. And then once they get this worked out with the Jewish court, they now need to find out how we can get the Romans to execute him. How How can we get the Romans to condemn him to death? Because that's not within our powers. We can't execute criminals. So then after the Jewish trial, there's a Roman trial where the Jewish leaders prevail upon Pilate. Pilate is the local Roman governor who set over this territory. They prevail upon Pilate to sentence Jesus to crucifixion. And in between there, Pilate is going to try to pass the buck off to Herod and Herod is going to pass him back to Pilate. It all sounds very orderly it all sounds very, you know, decent, right? I mean, you're just, we're just dealing with this in the courts, but, but it's a mockery of order. It's all, a, it's all a travesty of justice because it's a conspiracy. The Jewish leaders are so angry at Jesus, they railroad this through, and they don't give up until they get their way. What's at stake for them is this. Who gets to define what Israel is? Who gets to define Israel's identity? Who gets to say who we are? What the kingdom looks like? Who and what is importance to God, God's kingdom? And in their mind, Jesus gets all of this disastrously wrong. They feel threatened from every angle by Jesus. They think he's lawless. He doesn't care about God's law. He's too permissive with with outsiders. He's too friendly with Gentiles. He's trying to undermine everything we've built. So in their minds, Jesus is already guilty. This this court process is just a matter of cutting through irritating red tape to to get him convicted and executed. Because in in their minds, he's he's already guilty. So you can see they're in full corner-cutting mode. They're in full efficiency mode when they don't call any witnesses before the Sanhedrin. There are no formal charges. There's no evidence presented. See, in a courtroom, then as now, you need evidence. You need formal charges. You need witnesses. But they, they, they they don't go to any of that trouble. If they were sincere, and if these were just court proceedings, they would have. But no, they just invite Jesus to speak. And they say, well, he'll probably just incriminate himself. They think if we can just get him talking, that's going to be all the evidence we need. But, but Jesus frustrates them even in this. They ask, if you're the Messiah, tell us. And of course, Jesus can't just give them a simple yes. Why not? He says, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. Because your understanding, your definition of Messiahship is so different from mine and and you're, you're so warped. We, we don't have a common vocabulary here. We're not speaking the same language. And so no matter how I answer you, you're not going to let me go. I mean, the, the fix is in. This is all a setup. This is, this is courtroom theater. So Jesus lets him know, I'm not impressed and I'm not fooled. And I know what you're doing here. So Jesus pulls this imagery from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. He uses this enthronement language where the anointed, the, 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 the Christ of Yahweh, the Messiah of Yahweh sits on the throne of Zion and, and the Messiah is designated as the son of God. He's quoting their own scriptures back at them. And what he's saying essentially is, I'm more than another failed revolutionary. You think I'm just another rebel rouser. I'm more than that. I am the son of God. And when he says this, they hear him. They get it. They understand exactly what he's saying. So they say, are you saying that you're the son of God? And again, his response is clever. Jesus says, well, you said it. He's drawn them into connecting the dots for themselves and they have admitted who he is. He didn't have to say it. He turns their accusation into a confession. He speaks Bible and they make the connection. They say, oh, wait a minute. Here's what you're saying. They do the exegesis in their mind and they say, oh yeah, you're saying you're the son of God. And he said, you said it, you said it, you said it, but they still don't believe. They don't believe, but they do say, yeah, we got him. That's all we need. There's the smoking gun. That's what we came for. Now let's go take him to see the Romans. We'll pick up in verse one of chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, uh, from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. The accusers of Jesus bring Jesus before Pilate And as they do this, they once again expose themselves as entirely dishonest men. They really don't have a concern for justice here. They take Jesus to Pilate and they bring two charges. He is perverting the nation, that's number one, and number two, he forbids people to pay taxes to Caesar because he says that he is king. Now let's unpack those for just a second. He is perverting the nation. What does that mean? That's wonderfully vague. You can take that to mean whatever you want. That's not an argument. <laughs> that's 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 an assertion. There's there's no substance to that. Jesus uh, Jesus has been perverting the nation. How you know? Just just saying something doesn't make it true, right? If if I say you're a dummy, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a dummy, right? I mean, if, you can just say anything, right? You could just you just level accusations. You understand? That doesn't make that true, right? It seems like that's all you have to do now in our culture is I could just call you a Nazi and you are one. You think you're not one, but you really are because I know you better than you know yourself. You are a, you are a fascist. See, you, you all, you know, you're fascist. Why? Because I said you are. That's, that's all it takes. You are, you are racists. You know how I know that? Because I just called you one. And, and that's, that's all that's all you need. You just throw out assertions. Well, that's what they're doing. Christians do this to each other so often. And, and, and it always comes in kind of this gentle, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to correct you here, but it, it, it looks like, you know, this kind of thing where you do this too much or you do this not enough. It's, it's this vague too much, not enough. What are you talking about? You, you watch too many shows. Well, what's the right number of shows? Can you give me the right number? What are you talking about? You, you listen to too much of, 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 you know, jazz records, whatever. Can you give me the right number of jazz records? You know, it's, it's, it's this vagueness that, that they come against Jesus when they're just saying things that has no substance. You see what I'm talking about? It's just this, this emptiness. And then what, the second thing is, what's this about Jesus forbidding people to pay taxes? That's their allegation. Jesus forbids people to pay taxes? When? Where? He did the opposite He taught the opposite. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what's God's, but give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Jesus never said that. So if they're just going to take Jesus up to Pilate and level these vague accusations, you know, this just innuendo, this outright slander, why go through this charade of a Sanhedrin trial? Why, Why go through all of this? You know why? Because this is how vile men operate. This is how wicked men operate. It's all pretense. It's all a big show. It's all engineered somehow to help them justify their actions to themselves. In truth, it's not Jesus who is leading people astray. It is these men who are leading Israel astray. And they know it. They know it. And they are convicted. And they are guilty. So how do we distract How do we we say, you know, don't look behind the curtain? Well, he's the one who's guilty. He's the one who's leading people astray. They are guilty of their own accusations. Now, when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, it is as you say. And you can imagine Pilate chuckling to himself when he says, I don't find any fault in this man at all. Well, the Jews get frantic. And they say, this man is stirring up all the people from Galilee to to Judea. Again, another baseless, fragile, subjective charge. Stirring people up to do what? He's stirring people up how to do what? But Pilate doesn't dig into that at all because he hears the name Galilee. He hears the place Galilee and he says, oh yeah, I've got a chance now to pass the buck to Herod he's a Galilean? Oh, why didn't you say that? That's Herod's jurisdiction. And so now I don't have to deal with him. And he sends Jesus off to Herod. Now, Pilate doesn't believe Jesus is guilty. And Pilate's going to say about four times here, he's not guilty. Pilate's going to say that. But we shouldn't read that somehow as thinking, well, Pilate is honorable, or Pilate is righteous, or or, um, Pilate is just in any sense. Because Pilate could have shut the whole thing down. Pilate could have stopped everything. If he were the hero of the story, he had the authority and the power to stop this right now and say, this is nonsense, this is stupid, I'm going to put you in jail, I'm going to beat you for bringing false accusations. He could have done that. But his dealing with Jesus here is not just, it's not honorable, it's just dismissive. There's a sense in which the Sanhedrin has a very good reason to be concerned about Jesus. They ought to be worried about his power because Jesus is going to upend their whole world. That's why he came. The fact that Pilate doesn't understand the power of Jesus or doesn't see the power of Jesus just shows how arrogant and condescending Pilate is. (laughs) Pilate thinks Jesus can't possibly do anything to affect me. And so this is just typical... Roman hubris. Uh, Pilate is self-assured, Pilate is self-confident, and and this is all just silliness to him. So Jesus is shuffled off to Herod now, and Herod is super excited to see Jesus, finally meet Jesus. uh, uh, Herod has heard of Jesus, and, and, and Herod thought of him as some kind of wonderful sorcerer who could do magic tricks. And, and maybe Herod was looking for a little afternoon entertainment. You know, they didn't have DVDs then. So maybe, uh, how are we going to spend the afternoon? Well, maybe we'll just watch uh, Jesus do some, some magic tricks. And, uh, and, and Jesus, however, doesn't satisfy his curiosity at all. Jesus says nothing the chief priests and the scribes are not silent. Well, Jesus is silent. They're not, they're not silent. And they make up for their lack of evidence once again by throwing out these wild accusations. Herod grows bored of the whole affair. Jesus is such a disappointment. So Herod's soldiers mock Jesus. They put him in a royal robe, uh, which is just kind of a, you know, a funny little prank. Ha ha, you say you're king, so we'll just dress you up like one. And they send him back to Pilate. But, But Luke has this little footnote. He says, because of this, Herod and Pilate became good friends. They had previously been adversaries, but these flagrantly unjust proceedings brought them together. And it ought to remind us of Psalm 2, how rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let's let's read one more section and we'll see Pilate's final maneuver here. Verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning these things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas! Who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! <coughs> then they said, Uh, He said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they had requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Again, Pilate emphatically repeats his position that Jesus is innocent. Jesus didn't do anything to deserve this treatment. At the same time, Pilate doesn't do anything actively that would stop this insanity. He hopes that he can passively resolve this conflict. He calls everyone together and he says, look, you've brought him to me. I examined him. I didn't find anything wrong with him. I sent him to Herod. Herod examined him. Herod was bored with him. He didn't find anything wrong with him. He sent him back to me. Again, I don't, I don't see that he's done anything to deserve death. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to have him beaten, you know, because we're Romans, and that's what we, we're just going to beat him. We don't want to miss an opportunity to hand out a beating. So we're going to beat him, and we're going to send him back to you. And by the way, I always release a prisoner at Passover. So, so this is that. I'm doing that. Here he is. We're done here. Case dismissed. Now, it's still sickening. Every part of this is sickening. If Jesus is innocent, why would you why would you beat him? But Pilate still says, I'm I'm just gonna beat him. I think I think in his mind he's saying, well, maybe if I beat him, they'll think, oh well, we did something here, and we can go home. Maybe not with everything we asked for, but something. We we go home with something. But you see, you can only appease insane, irrational people with insane Uh, irrational uh, uh, consequences. You can only, you can only give them insane, irrational measures because they're insane and irrational. Reason doesn't help. It doesn't, it doesn't answer what they're looking for. And the point is proven when they don't like his conclusion. They only want one thing. They don't want him beaten. They want him dead. They want the execution of Jesus. So they say, uh, release to us that revolutionary. You know, you arrested somebody for murder and revolution a week ago. That zealot Bar- Barabbas, release him, and then crucify Jesus. Crucify him in the place of Barabbas. You were going to crucify Barabbas. Ah, we we got somebody else for that cross. Jesus. Well, Pilate he just gives up. He just capitulates. He just says, Oh, whatever. I'm tired of dealing with this. And he does what they want him to do. This is just another just another Jew on another cross. And we don't, we don't have to deal with this anymore. Let's just get it over with and get it done. So the obviously guilty man goes free, and now the innocent man is condemned to death. Now, you know a little bit about history, and you know a little bit about the mindset and the framework of first century Judaism, and you know that the Jews really resented the Romans. And that's putting it mildly. Many of these Judeans downright hated the Romans and their oppression. Yet, isn't it convenient when it serves their purposes, these priests and these scribes, they buddy up to the Romans. They craft arguments that sound good to Roman ears. They depend upon the cold, heartless machinery of the Roman executive power, the Roman spear, the Roman cross. They depend on these things to execute an innocent man. And all of this is deeply hypocritical. At every step, Israel is at war with herself. Israel is at war with her own identity. She's showing her true colors here by by buddying up to Rome, by by being so chummy with this empire that they hate. What are they doing? It just shows us how deceived, how self-deceived Israel is. She, she makes herself believe that, that she's better than the unclean Gentiles. She's better than the pagans. She's more pleasing to God than in every possible way. And at the same time, gets right down with the dogs and acts just like them. And so maybe Israel is worse in many respects than Rome. You see, not even Pilate really wanted to execute an innocent man they're all for it they they don't mind at all executing jesus they want to execute an innocent man do you see child of god do you see brothers and sisters do you see this do you see this is what happens to us when we adopt evil habits when when we adopt sinful habits and, and you know when you're adopting a habit you're teaching yourself a liturgy You're teaching yourself a new routine, a new way of living, and you practice at evil. You practice evil until you get really good at it. And part of practicing evil is justifying it to yourself. Part of practicing evil is helping yourself live with it. It's it's helping yourself justify it. We argue with ourselves about why this is good and righteous or Well, we can't help it, or God made me this way, or I don't have another choice, or I'm still better than this guy over there, even though I've got this wickedness in my heart, at least I'm not that guy, at least I'm not doing what he's doing. And so what we're doing is we're staging a war, we're staging a conflict against ourselves. We are waging a war against our own identity in Jesus, our own position as image bearers. This was the war that Peter was losing in the courtyard that night. He was publicly rejecting his own identity as a friend of Jesus. Why? To preserve himself from conflict or hassle from a girl and some guy and some other guy just rejecting his own identity. We do the same thing, people of God. We're doing the same thing when we embrace wickedness, when we train ourselves to think like idolaters. We're denying Jesus. So what is warring right now in this part of your life? What what conflict is being waged? What, What is warring in you? What is leading you down the path to defection? What, what makes you want to reject Jesus as your Lord, as your savior, to reject him the way that Peter denied him, the way that Israel would rather see him dead than to be their king? What are, what are you defecting over? What are, what are you leaving Jesus over? Now, I'm not saying you're walking out the door right now, but, but why are you edging toward the door? Why are you tiptoeing that direction? What is it that's leading you that way? What are you embracing that's more important, that's more vital, that's more attractive, that's more fulfilling, that's more life-giving than Jesus is? What what is it? What is it that you're holding on to that you think, oh, this is way better than obedience? This is way better than doing what God says. What what is that? Are you defrauding someone right now? Are you in the middle of, of lying to somebody and breaking a confidence or breaking a contract? Are, are are you a thief? Do you steal? Do you take things that aren't yours? Have you broken a promise and you're trying to justify yourself why it's okay? Are you bitter and are you refusing to forgive somebody who really needs your forgiveness and who really needs restoration, but you're just... Oh, you're just so hurt. Oh, you're just so offended. You can't, you can't grant forgiveness. And so what happens is that the devil has, has taken up a little foothold and he's turning you into an accuser against that brother or sister. And you're okay with it. You're okay with this role. You're fine being an accuser. You're happy. What idol are you enshrining? Do you have an altar in your mind devoted to lust or to money? Are you a sluggard? Do you, do you have control, uh, trouble controlling your appetite so that you're wasteful with your resources and your time? What is it? Is it, is it one of those? Is it, is it something else? Do you also realize that you do not have the power within yourself to resist any of those temptations? Do you realize that you do not have the power in yourself to overcome any of those sins? That on your own, you're gonna wash out just like Judas did. Do you realize that? On your own, you're going to flake out completely. You're not going to knock down any of those idols. By yourself, on your own, you will, you will repeatedly fall flat on your face. I can guarantee it. You know what, child of God? You need Jesus. You need the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You will never thrive. You will never abound in life. So long as you harbor idols in yourself, so long as you are at war with your identity in Jesus, (laughs) when you're waging war against who Jesus is creating you to be, there's no rest. There's no peace. There's no life. There's no tranquility. There's no fellowship with God or his people. You are at war because you are at war with your identity of Jesus, in Jesus. There's, there's no rest in you because of this. Why don't you lay down your sword? Why don't you repent? Will you do, why don't you repent of it? Why don't you let it go? Why don't you knock over the idol? Pray for God's Holy Spirit to fill you and strengthen you in the fight against those things that are killing you. Surrender to Jesus and now fight against the things that are killing you with Jesus. Israel fought against Jesus and they lost. Horribly. Bad. It was was ugly. It wasn't even close. Stop fighting him. Stop warring against your identity in Jesus. Put Away your sins and accept his free offer of grace and live and have peace and have joy and blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would guide us as you guided your servant Peter away from denial and back to yourself. You restored him, you uplifted him, you gave him an opportunity to to confess his love to your son. And so, Father, we ask for that same thing here. May we not reject our king the way Israel rejected her king. May we not reject our deliverer and war against him and crucify him afresh by by harboring wickedness and idolatries that, that that he is coming to destroy. So, Father, may we not harbor these things. May we not give them life, kill them in us, and lift us up by your Holy Spirit to new life. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.